G'day, welcome to Radio Notes. Audra Santa, our feature guest, recorded on a brief visit to Australia in late 2018. From their home country, my first ever pair of jeans were designed. It's a hemp of a yarn, and I'll share more on the new pair around my legs later on around the ankle part of the show. As well as music that's come across my desk and a quick check-in with the charts. In the box. What new releases have come my way through the electronic medium of the mail in the last few days? From Lanx, details of the second single from the band he's in, OK Moon, and a cut called Harpoon. Quite the supergroup with other members being Xavier Dunn, Dustin Tabuck and Hayden Kalen. Each stellar on their own, together the intelligence of this indie pop dialed to 11. Over a year to get the recording right and now, time to dive into the sonic ocean or at the very least navigate the treasure map to the heart it provides. On a personal note, this tune will either make or break me in the next couple of weeks. Tracy McNeil and The Good Life have a record out later in 2019 called You Be The Lightning and the second single from them is Not Like A Brother. Arrived to me as a Bandcamp link and you can find it there. Mixed by Alex O'Goran, recorded at the Avery Recording Studios and Dan Parson has a co-produced credit too. Such a summary vibe and hopefully those in the north will jump on to embrace this sooner than later. Tower and key metaphor in the tune had me reaching to spin some Rose Cousins after. Eurovision is just around the way and from EMI came details of an acoustic version of the Australian entry for it from Kate Miller-Heike, Zero Gravity. We'll share the acoustic video on the show notes. There's also two remixes that came out too at the same time from 7th Heaven and Where It's ATT. Speaking Australian, the Adelaide-born legend Paul Kelly has released a 29-track live at the Sydney Opera House, an album of classics done with guests from the 64-year-old. Finally, L7, after two decades, have a new album and well been worth the wait. Scatter the Rats, an album that opens with the single Burn Baby and across 11 tracks goes down alleyways, examines Wooji Board's untruths, has a jest at lifeways and all the while laid with the rock they're known for. Formed in 85, it was the early 90s when I started radio and Smell the Magic had been released and the cut Death Wish got regular spins on Demand and Deliverance, the Saturday night request show I hosted, Often, Packing a Rod got a spin too, next to a now banned body count number. Anywho, enough nostalgia. L7 have a brilliant new record out through Joan Jett's label Black Heart Records, Scatter the Rats. Now for our feature guest, recorded while they were briefly back in Brisbane, Australia. Audra Santa, from folk to now a genre described by Cashbox as goth soul. Always an artist to throw themselves into the body of their work. They notably spent a decade in Australia before heading back home to Canada for the next chapter of their music life, where they recently had their debut at Adelaide Hall, no less. This June, they'll return to Midham in Cannes, France, for a showcase at Morrison's, while also on track to be in Sweden in September for Live at Heart. Next appearance for Santa is Canadian Music Week, CMW for short, May 8th at Stacked, where they'll showcase their latest sounds, including the powerful vocals behind the Boudoir Project. 
Let's join them in conversation with John. We're joined by a guest with Fire Inside for the Fires of Life, working with the need for a form of nakedness to create, and recently launched at radio their latest single, banned by Facebook, featuring the burning looks with the watery touch of Harry DeMuro. Audra Santa, welcome to Radio Notes. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about that you were born in Thunder Bay, a decade in Australia, and now living back in the country of birth. Is this returning to a reset or something else for you? Oh, wow. Well, I spent 10 years in Brisbane, 2006 to 2016. I uh, came here originally to study and then ended up coming back and getting married and kind of building my entire adult life. And in 2016, I went back to Thunder Bay for a wedding. And at the time, I had just separated from my husband. I had this plan to go down to Melbourne and finally pursue music as I had always wanted to. And instead, as fate would have it, ended up meeting some musicians on a fateful weekend in Toronto and decided to stay and explore that a little longer. And then two years on, still found myself in Canada, moved my whole life down to Toronto, started building and allowing my music to take shape from there. And finally, I'm doing what I had always wanted to do, which is fully put my heart and soul and creativity into my musical expression. Super excited. At the time that we speak, the latest single is called Afterglow, shot on the shores, in fact, of Lake Ontario. Yes, yes. And a few people actually said to me when they saw it in Canada, they're like, did you shoot that in Australia? I went, oh, no. (laughs) That's the power of video and editing. Yeah, Lake Ontario, one of the five great lakes. It was rather chilly. It was a day in August that we did the first day of shooting. And then the second day, I ended up booking because when I looked at the cut of the first day, I realized I needed more content. I directed that video and I also took it from concept all the way through to the final edit. And it was a huge and exciting creative project for me and then just so much fun to like frolic in the sand and the water with that gorgeous model that you mentioned and you know just kind of explore a few things that I hadn't done before in the visual aspect. Talk us through the level of confidence you need to find within yourself from going from the film clip to Cruel to Afterglow. You know what it's funny because Yeah, there's a degree of confidence and bravado, even in art, as you're creating things. Most of the time, I'm terrified. I have quite a perfectionist bent. And even as a little girl, I wouldn't try anything unless I thought I was good at it right away. And it's only been getting into directing or getting into any aspect of music or creativity. It's been because I've had people behind me pushing me and saying, sure, I could direct this for you, but I think you can do it. Or sure, I could record this for you, but I think you have the ability to do part of it yourself. So yeah, the director of Cruel, I talked to him about the video concept and he said to me, I don't want to direct this. He said, I can help you with it, but I think you should do it. And I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I knew what I wanted in the end, but I just kind of meandered my way through it. And um, I think that's the thing as artists quite often are just people in life. We you know, we can step out somewhere and, and pretend we have a level of confidence, but a lot of us, we have no idea what the hell we're doing. And you build skill. Uh, for me, it was about the creative expression first and then just figuring out a way to make it happen. Talking about having a person or people around you to give the hand, the sign, the signal that you yourself can do it. How do you take that moment to look around and find those people to actually encourage you to give you that confidence? To be completely honest, most of them have found me 
or they have come into my life by almost a miracle of sorts. I've had amazing creative muses over the last 10 or 15 years of my life where it's almost like, like I say God, but people say universe or just fate. But I feel like God will bring people into my life at a certain time and they will be there for a season to help me to grow and to become more of who I am. And in this case, it was exactly the same. I've had kind of creative muses come into my life and give me that nudge. I do very intentionally also build my network. Like I do reach out, but one of the things I always encourage other artists to do too is that in networking or in getting to know a creative community, not thinking right away about what can I get out of this connection, but instead saying, well, who is this person? I want to discover about who that person is, what makes them tick, what are they passionate about, and letting that inspire you as opposed to trying to draw something out of it where I need a mentorship or I need a creative support person. It's not about that. It's about a collaboration that comes out of a mutually beneficial relationship. So with most of these people that I met, I was only in Toronto a few months and already I had this amazing creative network around me of people who were pushing and encouraging me. It was just because I connected with them and wanted to know who they were. And if there was an alignment creatively where we were into the same thing and we had about a similar vibe, then we'd just run with it. That's how I ended up with the video team that I had. That's how I've worked with the producers I'm working with. And it's been a really exciting process. I sense a level of leadership coming from you as well. Something I didn't know until today was that you're a church worship leader. Can you talk us through what that was and what the role mm -hmm. was? I originally, I started my music there was a church in Australia, in New Hope, Brisbane, and it was one day I was attending the church at the time. Someone came up to me and said, hey, we hear you play a bit of guitar. We don't have a leader for tonight. Can you sing a couple songs? <laughs> I went, oh, I, I guess so. So I went home. I learned a few songs. And then from then on, I ended up like being the music director in this church and leading a team. And it was a really formative and important time for me and it was important as well because in terms of developing not just leadership in a musical sense or leading the team it was also learn how to connect to a band how to connect in more of a the the flow or the spirit or however people understand it but understanding that when we are moving together as a band it's not about us just playing a lot of the same notes together it's actually how are we connecting how are we paying attention to the atmosphere in the room? How are we facilitating a place for people to experience and connect more with themselves and with the spirit and all of those things? So I take that same approach now into any music I make for any event I run, you know? Talking about a sense of place, there was some shooting of a film clip in the Darling Mason, which, by the way, is a creative space, but it's also an Airbnb as well. Who are the Darling Mansion and how does that creative vibe fit into what you are able to produce musically with a team? Well, that song, so Cruel was actually a song that I recorded as my marriage was breaking down here in Australia. I went down to Sing Sing Studios in Melbourne uh, before they shut down there, that one location, and recorded there kind of just out of this heartache of things that were imploding. I shelved it for a while. And then when I got to Toronto, uh, one of my first weekends there, I stayed at the Darling Mansion as an Airbnb. And it is the most eclectic place. If anybody here listening goes to Toronto, please look up the Darling Mansion, look up Tanya Grassi. She is just a 
creative maverick who's made this amazing place. So I stayed in the opium den, which was a bedroom upstairs. After I saw it, I mentioned to Tanya several months later that I was interested in shooting a video and she opened up her home to me and I shot it there. And it was, yeah, it was this dark and moody and foreboding vibe that I wanted for the song. Really, the creativity, even now, I, I work with people who are some of the creative artists working within the mansion or connected to the community there, including a lady named Micheline, who's a live painter and artist and fashion designer, another designer named Evan Bedell, and they've kind of all become my community. It's almost this little neighborhood that I live in where we all encourage and inspire each other. I think what I'm hearing is it gave you a chance for that song to actually connect back to when you first arrived in a new space as well. So an old memory, mm-hmm. but a new space. Was it a chance to close that chapter in any particular way? Or did it leave the book open on that story, that narrative for which the song is about? Oh, you know, it's really interesting because the song at the time was when my relationship was kind of falling apart. And it was just a visceral response. I was even thinking of the words I literally just came into the studio and emoted and the producer, Tristan Hoogland, who's now in L.A., was like, that's it. When I went to do the video, the video wasn't really connected to the song directly. The video was more about reconciling two different parts of myself, the dark and the light. And, you know, as we're talking about being a worship leader and in a church, I, I, I really struggled when I stepped out of that and started making my own music like exploring certain parts of myself that I almost thought were forbidden or bad in some way and one of the things that's been a big part of my healing the last couple of years not just relationally but with myself and with you know my own sense of spirituality and everything has been not calling any part of myself bad but actually redeeming it all by allowing myself to fully examine every part of who I am who I was and who I want to become That video is about the dark and light parts of myself and the division of the two, but actually allowing it to come together and realizing that the true essence of who I am doesn't deny any of it. Is this the aspect that being the good girl is creative suicide? Oh, I think putting yourself into any sort of box is creative suicide. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, for a long time, all of my art was very safe. I was playing it safe safe art makes for weak art, in my opinion. If I'm trying to make art that's going to appeal to everyone, then it will be something that inspires no one. So even now, so with my my recent video, Afterglow, as we're talking about it being banned on Facebook, what happened was, is there's too much implied nudity that I wasn't able to promote the Facebook post. And I got a couple messages from some, you know, lovely friends and well-intentioned people who didn't like the video themselves. And that's okay. It's not for everyone. And no art is for everyone. People are going to have different tastes. There were certain things within the video that I was doing that was allowing myself the creative freedom and the fullness of expression and sensuality and parts of myself that I had kind of kept wrapped up for a long time coming out and to make a statement because it's about a woman taking back her power. So in that sense, some people aren't going to like what I do. And being the good girl and trying to do something where everyone's going to like it is actually fully denying the reason that I make any music or art in the first place. All of my music initially from when I was young came out of pain. It came out of a place of trying to understand broken parts of myself. 
So it's not going to be clean. It's not going to be, you know, all shiny and new all the time. It's going to be messy. And my hope is that with any music or art that I make is that it would inspire other people to be willing to look at some of the darker or the hidden parts of themselves. Because we always have a choice about what we do with it, but we have to look at it in the first place. Briefly on Facebook issue, when I was hearing about the banning, I was imagining those in Facebook who are underpaid, who need to actually decide what is good and what is bad. And, <laughs> and, and for them not, not to have the, uh, the graciousness of time to go, well, that looks great. Instead going, oh, I better err on caution. I'm getting paid less than the minimum wage. I better just go. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I imagine it was probably even bots. Like so many things are automated days. I think it probably was some computer scanning and seeing a lot of skin. And then some a person looking at it and confirming, yes, there's a lot of skin. It wasn't Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> wife going, Mark, you can't have a look at that. No, not happening. No, no, not okay. Not don't happening, happen, not happening. Uh, one thing I do want to say about that video is that I'm so proud of it. Like I look at it now and I'm very proud of where I got it to in the end. The final cut, the amount of hours we spent in the editing suite, because really I pieced it together. I didn't, I didn't storyboard it and then like take it all out. I had ideas and I filmed it. And then I was like, well, that isn't working. I have to film more and added pieces together. And in the end, it came together in nearly a miraculous way. And I'm really proud of it. And the thing that I'm realizing now with the anything that I make is I'm not even as attached to who likes it, but also even how far it gets. Like, yeah, of course, I want more people to hear my music and pay attention so that I can make more of it. But it was so fulfilling on a personal level that I went, well, if Zuckerberg doesn't like it, that's fine. <laughs> We're not saying he actually seen it. I'm, I'm sure it got censored before he got no, to see it. No, maybe he will after this podcast. We should send it to him. This brings the fact that you were actually director of this very <laughs> film clip. What are those feelings that being a director of your own work and possibly of others later brought you? Wow. Well, um, th there was a long time, and like the video itself is about kind of taking back my own power but there's a long time where I was relinquishing my power to everyone else really willingly nobody was taking my voice away from me no one was saying that they wanted to control me but as a woman and as an artist I was almost looking for validation from everyone else I was needing people to be okay and happy with who I was so I continually instead of deciding if I felt okay about me I was deferring it to everyone else to tell me if I was okay and this was also happening in my art. And I had some producers who were saying to me, because I'd be like, oh, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I think maybe this mix needs to change. And I had a few call me on it. And they said, no, you do know what you're talking about. You might not have all the technical words for it, but you know what you want. And I need you to tell me what you want. So just connecting with what I wanted, it's been a process step by step to take control back on all of my art and go, yeah, I'm going to learn more skills. But if the guy that I'm shooting the video with says I should direct it, well, I'll give it a crack. If I can take it further, it just keeps going. You gendered it there by saying as a woman, how much did that play mm -hmm. into it? How much did identifying with that gender play into? You know, it's funny because I, I paid attention to myself gendering it as well, because I think men can deal with this as I'm not saying that it's just a woman's struggle at all. However, we are conditioned in society as women 
there's a very kind of feminine way of being of approaching things and even in studying masculine and feminine energies the masculine is often more dominant and more forward and and the feminine's a bit more gentle and accommodating and for me i i just found that as a woman i had put myself in a certain place and again no one put me there i put myself there yes society might have implied things that i've taken on and worn as a coat for a long time but it was my choice to take that coat off so now as i'm doing everything i'm having to pay attention like my first gig for example in toronto things don't always go according to plan especially in live i was very conscious of managing that first gig that i was in a room of men and i showed up and there were a few things that were miscommunicated in the venue and my first thought to myself because i was going around saying what i needed and what i wanted all of a sudden i went oh they're gonna think i'm a bitch they're gonna think i'm a diva because i'm telling them no i need a sound check no it's not okay that this hasn't been done this way this is what was agreed upon i became really aware that as a woman asserting authority or power with these men that i was had just met could be seen as um yeah being a bitch and i wasn't sure how i felt about that and i re- i love this quote uh, from from Beyonce because <laughs> we often get called like bossy you know mm. you look at leadership in kids and you'd be like well that that girl's being bossy and Beyonce would say well I'm not bossy I'm the boss <laughs> and I'm realizing I'm the boss of my own life and I'm the boss of my own music and the sooner that I take control over those aspects of myself the further I can take it what was the catalyst within you that said it was time to do so? I went through, I went through a really severe depression a couple of years ago. And that depression stemmed out of a place of needing to please everyone else and not knowing who I was or what I wanted. And what started to happen was I, as I was examining parts of myself and figuring out the real root causes of some of it, and then working on some of my relationships and ways of relating with people, I realized that I had given away that power, as I said, and that the only way that I could become whole again was actually giving myself a little more credit (laughs) and allowing myself, my own authority and agency to control my life and to make decisions. And what I started to see as I kept doing that was that I I had decisions in front of me all the time. It's very easy for us people to say things like, I have to, or I should, like, I have to go to work. Well, no, you don't have to go to work. Like, yeah, you signed a contract that said you would, but every morning when you wake up, you still have a choice. And if you take away that choice by saying you have to do things, you're actually disempowering yourself. So when I stopped allowing myself to say, I have to, or I should, and I started to say, I choose to, and this is why I choose to, it put me in the driver's seat in a new way. And now with my life, I examine my choices all the time. I do this process of mind mapping personally, where I sit down and I make sure that my decisions and actions are in line with my deeper values. So I actually like pull back, what do I really value? And are the things that I'm doing in my life building more momentum towards those things or are they taking away and distracting me from what actually matters because depression can take you down that very dark corridor of the decision of Mm -hmm. living or not to live yes i was there absolutely absolutely 
yeah, it can be a very scary place and it can be very isolating. And even when I, when I was going through the worst of my depression a few years ago, see, I actually have a background in mental health. I did my honors in psychology, my master's in public health. I've worked in managing mental health programs. And yet when depression hit me, I knew I was feeling depressed. I didn't actually acknowledge that I was severely clinically depressed. And it was only when I got a phone call as I was driving over a bridge, over the Gateway Bridge in Brisbane, and my phone happened to ring and it just happened to be my counselor. And she said, I just, and she never calls me ever. And I answered the phone. I said, Anne, it's amazing you call because I'm having these thoughts and feelings that I haven't had before where I want to drive my car off this bridge. And she said, well, I just felt I needed to ring you to confirm our appointment, which she had never done before. And she said, because I do think you have a mood disorder and we need to get you to a doctor. So at that point, I went in to see her. We had a really great conversation. And I went to the doctor. And again, I was totally resistant. I'm like, I don't want to do it. I agreed just for my own safety in that time to get through that challenging time to go on some medication, which I did for a year or so to get over the really difficult, you know, challenge I was going through. But it also gave me the tools to enable myself to get up in the morning so I could work on the issues that were underlying the depression. Hmm. I'm a huge advocate for people talking about this sort of thing, for uh, mental health services and for uh, support systems being put in place. And also for us to kind of take away the stigma about being able to have the conversations of depression, of other mental health issues. And uh, yeah, it's a dark place, but when you have the support and you can get out of it, it's there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. The important thing, as we're saying there, is the consultation is actually having a conversation about where you're at and where the issues are at. And what I was picking up also was the fact that even with that knowledge of what is in black and white compared to what can be within the colour of life and how those colours can change exactly. as well. Exactly. And one day to the next, one of the things I kept reminding myself with depression was I would wake up and there might be a really bad day and I'd wake up and all of a sudden it felt like the walls were caving in on me. And I'd ask myself, what's different about today than yesterday? I'm like, nothing. Just my perception. Maybe I have some new information, but I am okay. And I would have, um, there was a gym I used to work at here in Brisbane, happened to be in Brisbane right now, just visiting. Mm -hmm. But there was a gym I worked at where someone who worked there, Beanie, Soul Fit, she'd say, just stop and ask yourself these two questions. How do I want to feel? And what do I need to do to feel that way? And it was so simple. So if I wanted to feel comforted or connected or whatever it might be, sometimes the step I could take to bring myself a little closer was as simple as taking a shower or going for a 10 minute walk or calling a friend. And those little things just gave me new perspective so I wouldn't get too wound up in my own head. How great are walks? Just one foot after the so other. So good. After right? the other. It's that, yes. that, that forward motion. That mm -hmm. thing the former Prime Minister, one of many we've had in Australia, said, moving forward, one foot after Moving forward. The other. That's right. That's right. 
Let's yeah. lighten the mood for you a little. We'll get back to the film clip Afterglow because I want to talk about a band. Oh, look, it, it is a little while ago. Maybe both of us are way too young to remember them that well called Joy Drop. Someone who worked with them ah. was producer Thomas McKay. Who is Thomas McKay? How did you get to hook up professionally with such a talent? And uh, what a great basis they are. Let's swoon a little about Thomas McKay. Oh, I love him. He, okay. So Tom's actually one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Doesn't surprise me. Hardest working in music. Oh, he's, he's killer. He's a, he'd been signed on to a couple different deals, both in the UK and Canada. Yeah. And the bass player for Joy Drop. Joy Drop was like a band that I loved when I was in the, uh, in when I was 15, I think they put out their record, Metasexual. I, I knew them well. And what happened was I was in Toronto and I was on an app similar to a dating app like Tinder. There was an app called Shaper and Shaper is an app that's just for like connecting on a professional level and networking. And I saw this guy who was a producer. Turns out he was only on that app one day. And I was only really on it one day. We met, we swiped right on each other. <laughs> I had a meeting with him, went in and met him. And I didn't realize until afterward that he was actually the producer and the bass player for Joy Drop. But we vibed off each other right away. Lovely guy. And he's a big part of the reason why I'm making music the way I am now. Because when I first went in to see him, I had released Keep Asking, which I'd recorded here in Australia. And I had this idea that I was going to release Cruel kind of as this black sheep of some of my muse and then get into this poppy, happy R&B type thing. And he listened to the songs that I brought him. And then he's like, show me everything you've written. I showed him a whole list of songs I've written. He heard my story. We talked about depression. We talked about my relationship. We talked about the things that I used to love, like when I was a kid. And, you know, I used to be obsessed with like just weird shit, like bugs. And like, <laughs> I still I still am. I was just a dark, weird child. Like I was, I was on many levels. He said to me, you know, I'm looking at these songs you brought here, Audrey. He said, I, I don't know who who you think you are. But when I listen, I, I don't know if it's this. And he challenged me and he said, look at the list of songs you have here. Which one makes you feel like you're going to vomit? And I looked at it and I pointed at a song called, I think it was Native Species. And he said, how about we start there? And it was the best thing that could have happened because he went, stop thinking about what sounds good or what could be like, what kind of music you think you want to make. What's actually the music that moves you? What's the music that makes you feel like you're a bit sick inside? And he could tell that there was this anger in me that I was presenting as this really happy and go lucky person. But on the inside, he could see that there was dark, seething anger, frustration, and this woman who just wanted to come out and just scream at the top of her lungs. He wanted to figure out how to let her come out and set her free. What I like about that is just that serendipitous of it, that you're both on the app you're suggesting for just a day, a window. You were listening to them as a kid as well, weren't you? I was, I was. But you know what, John? Like my whole life, the past two years has been that. Uh, there's been a serendipitous, magical component of nearly every single day of my life in the last two years. I can't, 
to the point that people have literally asked me if there's a horseshoe up my ass <laughs> just because things are, are unfold in a great way because I see so much opportunity and I feel very, very blessed to have the things that are finally coming together. And when working with Tom was certainly one of those things and realizing that some of these people that I had idolized were just like me. Has it had to do with the fact of giving yourself some freedom as well to actually be the artist you want to be, to not be shackled down to a nine to five per se? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, even that has been amazing. Like I've, I've had opportunities unfold in my life in the other, you know, professional aspect of my life consulting, which means that I have the freedom to focus on music time to, you know, stay out till three if I need to or whatever it might be. And it's, there's a lot of freedom in that. Mm-hmm. My understanding is you're currently back in Australia to work with, discuss with issues of Indigenous communities. Can you possibly talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit about that personal experience for you? I guess it's the professional, but also that personal engagement you have with Indigenous communities. Oh, man, it's been such an honor. So originally, I came to Australia to study my master's in public health, focusing on Indigenous health. I went back to Canada, and there's the Ontario Native Women's Association, which is an Indigenous women's group that focuses on the voices and issues that affect Indigenous women and their families. So I worked for them in a little window 10 years ago. And then when I went back, and I moved back there in 2016, I engaged with them again and was working in supporting building capacity within their organization, in policy and communications. When I moved down to Toronto, I ended up working not just in the policy space, but specifically for an Indigenous women's organization that provided services to women in Toronto. And then now I'm also doing some work for the Downey Wenjack Fund. Do you remember the Tragically Hip and Gord Downey? I do. Iconic Canadian band. Absolutely. I know most of your listens may be Australian, now, but Gord, I do encourage everyone to check them out. Sorry, yeah. interrupt. Gordy passed away on October the 18th of last year. That's correct. So when Gord passed away in the last year, he ended up doing some really amazing work that has become his legacy. He wrote an album called Secret Path, and that was based on the story of a young boy named Chani Wenjack who was taken just much like in Australia, where we have the stolen generation here. There was the residential school system in Canada where Indigenous young kids were taken from their families, put in schools where they were boarded, and quite often there was abuse and neglect, and they were not allowed to practice their culture or speak their language. So we had the same root, the colonial roots, the same intergenerational trauma in Canada as we do here in Australia, the the very fabric of what made a family a family was ripped out from under these communities. And there's been so much struggle and challenge. And there's been very, very little education in Canada up to this point until there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission a few years ago, where people didn't even realize this had happened. So what happened was Gore Downey He ended up finding out from his brother, Mike, about Chani's story. Now, young Chani had been at a residential school close to Kenora, Ontario, and he decided to run away. And he was running away following the railway tracks back to his community. And unfortunately, he ended up dying of exposure and his body was found beside the tracks. Gord was so affected by this that he wrote an entire album, poetry, and then the music that went with it based on Chani's story. 
And then there was an artist by the name of Jeff Lemire who actually created a graphic novel out of this. And now you can go on YouTube and you can see what's become a documentary. Gord ended up being awarded um, the Order of Canada and honored greatly by Indigenous communities. And now as Canada is on this journey of reconciliation, where all of us as Canadians have a responsibility to repair the foundations of which were totally wrong coming into the country and trying to steal what was not ours. So as a settler or non-Indigenous person, I have now a responsibility for reconciliation. And we also now have all the Indigenous communities where we're coming together in partnership to move forward on this journey. So I have the incredible honor right now where I've also been working with the Downey Went Jack Fund because Gord, prior to his passing, um, the Downey family and the Wenjack family, so Chani's family, uh, created this fund where it's a foundation where we work together to build awareness across Canada around the issues of reconciliation residential schools. So I've even been helping to build an artist um, ambassador program to get music and artists in the schools to talk about these issues. So that's why you're in the country, isn't it? Well, yeah, well, partly. Healing Our Spirit Worldwide, it's the eighth gathering of First Nations from all over the world that are going to be in Sydney, November 26th through 29th. So I know by the time this airs, that will have passed, but it's a gathering of Indigenous communities there. And thankfully, the Ontario Native Women's Association will be presenting, and I have the incredible privilege of supporting them to do so, and also being a representative of the Indigenous Newswire in Canada, Nation Talk. So I'll be working kind of a journalist capacity as well for them. I've got a quote here, bottle of wine and a baseline. Does this bring us back to Tom or is this something else? <laughs> oh, John, I always love talking to you. You do such wonderful research. I learn things about myself when you ask me questions. Oh, yes. Well, that's about a project that I have on the go that started as a secret project. When I first went back to Canada, found myself in this place of kind of exploring parts of myself that I had hidden away for a long time. In particular, you know, my sexuality, my sensuality, my connection to other people, all of these things. But I had quite a degree of almost hidden shame around it because it was a very new thing to even explore that again. And I ended up sending some music to an incredible producer in Australia by the name of Nick O'Donnell. I've never met. I had just heard his music at a show I went to, and I messaged him on Facebook afterward and told him that I had not been moved by someone's music like that in years. But we kept in touch, and when I started to explore some of this music, I was also going on GarageBand for the first time and playing with music production software. So I made this sexy song called Heaven on Earth one night, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to send this to that Nick guy. Why not? I don't even really know him. I may as well just send it off. And so I, I forwarded it to him. The next morning I woke up because, because of course, Australian Canada time was different. And he had been working on it. He sent it back to me, mixed with some swinging shaker on it and some sex guitar, as he called it. <laughs> and I was blown away with how it sounded. What, what was the line? What did you say? Uh, the, um, the quote was, bottle of wine and a bass line. Uh, yeah. 
I was uh, staying with my parents at the time. I was in the bedroom in the basement and I had a bottle of wine because my dad kept telling me it was a good idea for me to, you know, de-stress and relax a bit. So he'd bring me wine to my door. Um, So here I was with an entire bottle to myself. I downed it. I had this bass line running on GarageBand and I just started singing these lyrics that when I listened back to them, I went, oh my goodness. (laughs) I sent that to Nick because again, I went, well, nothing to lose. And a song came back that we call Castle. And it is probably something of mine that when I listen to it, I am most moved by it because it's there's something really raw and sensual and sexy about it that I was afraid of to that point. So after that, there was about two years of Nick and I sending music back and forth across the ocean, still having never met each other, called The Boudoir Project. And... I'm really excited about it. And now I'm at a point where I'm not afraid to share it with the world. But for a while, keeping it as a secret project meant I could explore and I could go deeper. And the idea that no one would ever hear it allowed me to go places I normally wouldn't. But now that I'm not embarrassed about any part of who I am, I'm ready to share it. I did play a couple songs. I played these songs at Medem in Cannes, France, in June because I was invited to showcase there and I did play a few of the songs I had a different guitarist and I played with against some tracks and it was received like it was crazy there was actually a double encore the night that I did these songs for some reason I'm thinking of a body contortionist that I think you've been doing launches with or at least uh, the world of Mm -hmm. yoga now is the world of yoga and body contortionist something new for you well it's just been again like collaboration with other artists so At the Darling Mansion, I had been to a few parties there where they had had this contortionist and they also had shibari, which is like a form of artistic Japanese rope bondage. And they had like these amazing performances that were very physical. I've done a bit of dance before. I'd love to bring dance into my videos or things like that in the future. But there was something so beautiful about these artists. So bringing contortionists into like a party I'm throwing, I love it. Uh, Yeah, yoga and some of that has been more of some of my own personal practice in the past few years for meditation and I'm just I I get fascinated with everybody's what their own journey is and just making my my parties or my shows or my videos about more than just simply music and things that accompany it but trying to actually enhance the experience is this where we pick up on what you say is art beyond the music yeah, so that was something that came out. There's a there's a journalist in Canada by the name of Lenny Stout who now works for, he writes for Cashbox. He used to do a lot of stuff. He's originally from Georgia. He has this wonderful accent. And he calls me Audra, and I, I love it. He's the one who talked about that. He said, you know, in all the years that he had done music, he said what he's seeing was that what I was doing was art beyond the music, that it wasn't just about the sound or about the, you know, a, a record. And yeah, so we've kind of brought that into now that he's mentoring me a little bit as well, brought that into thinking about everything that I do from here on, instead of just like accompanying the music, actually saying, well, if I want to create art that's bigger, even this morning, I was having a conversation with another musician here in Brisbane. And I was saying to her, you know, I can say that I value music and I do it. But what I actually really value is creativity and self-expression. And music is a mode of that. It's a medium for me to express. But so is visual art or video or poetry. So I'm now 
looking at music, not, not things to enhance or hold the music, but just like going, what's, what's the expression and how do I elevate, enhance and amplify that expression? You've come to believe getting naked is key to uncovering one's true essence. The idea of nakedness for you, what are we exploring? What are we talking about? Mm, that was a quote from uh, a piece of writing I had that was, that was exploring the boudoir project for me. I just found that we, as people, when we are uncomfortable with a part of who we are, instead of uncovering it and exploring it and getting naked per se, we put on more layers, more layers of clothing. We, we hide our shame in the same way that the story of Adam and Eve hiding their shame, taking a fig leaf and going, I'm naked. And God says, who told you you're naked? So for me, I was realizing that the only way I could release shame was actually pulling apart and uncovering myself and not being afraid to look at it. And I think that becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, becoming willing to lean into the parts of me that I'm afraid of has been a really big part of becoming whole, becoming who I am, not shying away from being big, uh, having a voice, and yeah, exploring more of myself. And I think that we also, um, in that nakedness, one of the things that we tend to do when we get afraid is we'll also judge ourselves before we even explore what it means for us. So we'll decide that an emotion is good or bad, or we'll decide that our past is good or bad. What if we didn't actually put that judgment on and we just went and looked at it and asked ourselves some questions? So for me, Getting naked and doing that secret boudoir project allowed me to uncover parts of myself, explore it and examine it in a safe place, and then um, decide to share only if I wanted to, which I do. The latest single as we speak is called Afterglow, and one of the essences that comes through that in terms of nakedness is, is the scars that you can have when you do show some nakedness. How have you been healing those scars over the last few years through both your music, your musical experience, and who you've become since leaving Australia Mm. through that process of nakedness oh so many things it's been leaning in and exploring the parts that scared me the most and letting go of ideas of what I thought was what my life was going to be and allowing myself to open up to possibilities a lot of the healing actually It wasn't work that I had to do afterward. There has been a lot of healing the last two years, but it was actually the brokenness and the depression and the other work that I had done where I was so uncomfortable during that time that laid the groundwork for this healing to happen. So as soon as I moved to Canada, as soon as I started exploring my music in Toronto, it was almost like life actually became a lot easier at that time. I was no longer feeling stuck, I was allowing myself the freedom. So yeah, I mean, I've had some really great people around me. And I've just, uh, over time, I've had to let go of what I thought my life was going to be at a certain point in my life. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, like, oh, I'm now in my 30s, that means I need to own property, or I need to (laughs) be aligning to these certain ideals that I had set. Yeah, just approaching life with wonder. But what about the anger? You spoke to Cashbox regarding the anger that you were feeling, that you were trying Mm. to push away those that were trying to get close, particularly those on a more personal level. 
I was part of this online songwriting club, iHeartSongwritingClub.com, uh, where there was, um, I get a songwriting assignment every week and the assignment was moving backwards. And we just had to you know, write this, this song. You have an hour to write it, you get a restriction. The idea is just to get a songwriting every week. So I sat down and I didn't realize I was angry until I started to play. <laughs> and then the lyrics that just came out were like, I warn you that many have come before. Ask and I'll show you carved privilege and spoils of war. There were these men that had been approaching me and these people approaching me in, in Toronto and wanting to get close to me, wanting to take me out. And I, there was just something in me where I'd be like, yeah, you want to cry? <laughs> and I felt like I was going to destroy someone in a hundred different ways. And I think that the only way for me to deal with the anger at the time was through it, was to express it. For a very long time, I looked at anger as a bad emotion. I said, well, I, sh I can't feel that way. I'm not allowed to feel that. But when I actually said, what if I let myself feel it 110%? I don't want to hurt anybody. And that's why I need to let myself feel it. Because otherwise, it's going to kill me from the inside. And it is going to actually destroy potential relationships that come in my way. So I allowed myself to feel. I allowed myself to put it into my music. I allowed myself to express it in other ways in my life, in safer ways or in very contained ways. And that was a big part of the healing and not being afraid of being angry, being like, you know what, I can be as angry as I want to be. You know, I'm allowed to feel this because for a long time I was telling myself I wasn't allowed to. The issue with anger and any other emotion isn't the feeling, it's what we do with it. So if I didn't allow myself to process it, I think it could have been very destructive. We were talking there about the scars, though, as well. So obviously conflict can be part of an anger response. And I guess sometimes it's reactionary to how you're dealing with people at the time. Have mm -hmm. you found a path through music to actually communicate how you've dealt with that? When we listen to these tunes that have been and maybe, dare I say, the boudoir sessions when they come out, of how to actually deal one-on-one -on -one with how to produce the scars. Mm. Well, like in something like Afterglow, if you look at the Afterglow video, the concept around that was the black mark that he leaves on my chest and then me tying him up and putting a black mark on his chest. That really represents the mark that people can leave on you or the scars. And, and then the colors of us, like the intimacy and the beautiful marks you can leave behind on someone too. Just making that video was healing for me, just in simply acknowledging that those marks can be left. The boudoir project was healing in a different way. And I think that when people hear it, they might, they, they might hear that healing. But I think they'll just really, in some ways, just hear real, like, visceral and sexual and connected response that just comes out of being human and, be, and feeling all of these, these things that we have the capacity to feel. And I think that that's been the healing part is just allowing myself to feel everything, feel everything. Again, when we're talking about depression, we, we can get really scared of our feelings and or we can decide that some feelings are OK and some aren't. And I think that the healing of scars for me has been about allowing the scar tissue to break up by bringing life underneath them again, by actually allowing the blood to flow and allowing that the oxygen to come and examine them. And for me, with any music, that's what it's been. The music has allowed me to examine things in a safe space. Even when we were talking before about 
indigenous issues. The reason that Gord Downey's legacy and the Downey Winjack Fund is so powerful is because music can bring people together and music can allow people to feel things they might not just do in a regular conversation. And music has done that for me personally. And I hope that for some, they might hear what I do or see what I do and that maybe it'll help them to look at those scars for themselves. Andra, <laughs> thank you very much for joining Radio Notes. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Audra Santa, next to appear at Canadian Music Week at a showcase on May 8th at Stacked, can be found online at audrasanta.com. Details of the Medium Showcase is in Cannes, France in June and Live at Heart, Sweden in September. Radio Notes, Discoveries. Quick look at some of the releases that have come across my desk. Tune about May from Lucy Dacris. My mother and I, about the connection, being a daughter and all that brings, as well as about the presence of body. Dacaris is from Richmond, Virginia. Light guitar pickings by Jacob Blizzard. Filthy Friends' second album, Emerald Valley, is out. Like with OK Moon mentioned at the top, this is a group of some of the very fine artists. Included in the band, co-founder of Sleater Kinney, Corin Tucker, REM's guitarist, Peter Buck, as well as Scott McCorry and Kurt Blotch, out through Kill Rock Stars. Speaking of collaborations, Brian Capio has paired up with Hannon Cameron for Brain Romance. Their debut single is Honest Words. Also on the self-produced mixed release, Clio Renner on keys, Tamara Murphy on double bass. Who sent what? First time giving this segment a whirl, not always new releases, and like today, we'll venture slightly out from music for a moment too. This is not an advertorial part. The show takes no sponsorship. To allow me to have moments like now to share openly what I reckon. First up, Kobe Grant, who can be heard from the archives in episode 10, sent me an advanced copy of their Solid Ground album, due out later this year, before they headed back to Berlin, where they're currently just about to start their tour of Europe. We'll give it a review later, most likely as a blog, but what I will share now, it does feature the singles, Winter Bear, All These Years with Jamie Faulkner, who just yesterday was laying down some live tracks with her, and Heartbeat, which is an older song given a new lease of life in the middle of the album, from memory back from 2012 or so. If you're not already following Kobe Grant on the socials, worth it for the laughs and often performs live to the streams there. Next two I paid for with my own funds, but uh, worthy of mention, Adelaide-based record label Hobbled Hoy Records have been offering mystery music packs. Whilst on the face of it might seem an easy way to clear stock from their warehouse, it's more. They're offering a chance to get test pressings and really great ways to get albums from them might not have considered listening to and to discover new music from a very eclectic discography. Finally, to jeans. In fact, the ones I'm wearing right now, normally more of a pant wearer than jeans that normally do not suit me and find them to be not very environmentally friendly for the wash look. It just takes so much water to make them. But an environmentally and socially aware clothing company caught my eye. I'm no influencer, but I do like to cover my fugly legs. Designed in the country of today's feature guests, made in Melbourne, Australia, and the founder is a former South Australian, I believe. What piqued my interest was these facts. 54% hemp, and the cotton is organic in them. In fact, the vegan, and sent in a biodegradable packaging for those looking for that style. Personally, I believe hemp is a much more sustainable material to make clothing from, and still have my shorts made of it from the 90s. Fun fact, 
When I picked them up from the post office, the counter staff member lit up as they shared their use of hemp oil and how they'd be keen to wear hemp themselves. Amazingly, what insights you get having a yarn with your local postal worker. Anara is the company making these jeans. We'll not go into too much detail into their story now as I put a request in to chat with the founder next time they're in Adelaide. What we'll share is they're doing a run of 1,000 now as part of a soft launch. If that sounds like something you're into and want to be one of the first, remember I've paid for mine, this is not an advert, then check them out. They're called Anara. There's a lot of talk about the environment sometimes. Here's practical way to wear it better. Off the charts. Taylor Swift's latest has had 135 million views on YouTube, but landed only number two on the official Australian charts at week's end. And as for streams there, they can be seen at number three with Lynn Nassax, Billie Eilish above Swift. Watch free, less investment in real money to the music, though not one likely in the need for the coin. Speaking of millions, a fave podcast of mine, Shameless, has just clocked 2 million listens. They also did a great take on the new Taylor Swift Me song. Links in the show notes. Back to the charts, taking a glance over the Australian Recording Industry Association 1. Hilltop Hood's Exit Sign stays put at number one on the Australian artist streaming singles. Good Lord by the Birds of Tokyo up one to push the Hilltop Hoods to two in the Australian Artist Singles. Australian Artist Albums Top 3 in at one, The King, Gizzard and the Lizard Wizards Fishing for Fishes. Number two, The Seekers Farewell and the Hillsong's People round out the three. To what some say is the only chart that matters, the album chart, where refreshingly there are four Australian albums in the top 10 in the related Australian Recording Industry Association chart. Let's start with an Australian entry and one I know that entertainment reporter Peter Ford was keen for, David Campbell's Back in the Swing with the first time entry at number 33, BTS drops from 3 last week to 10. New at 9 is Catfish and the Bottlemen, 8 Dean Lewis, 7 Khalid, 6 Hillsong, 5 The Seekers, 4 King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and the top 3. Starting with Matchbox 20 singer, who's been doing a lot of media in the last week and suggested a possible 2020 tour for 2020, the solo album from Rob Thomas, 2 Billie Eilish, also been touring and dropping press, and right in at number 1, Onanary Aussie. Pink with Humans to be Human. One final one that's still number one over at the dance singles chart, Avicii, featuring Allo Black's SOS. Thank you to our feature guest, Andre Santa, joining us, showcasing as part of the CMW at Stack on May the 8th at 8pm. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 